Mormon Expression. This is Heather, and I will be one of your co-hosts for today. Um, I am working with Greg, who has been on a couple of podcasts, and uh, he is going to hopefully help me uh, discuss the issue at hand today. So, hello, Greg. Hello. I will. Uh, I'll give it my best shot. Great. So, just so everybody is familiar, you've been on a few podcasts recently. Can you r- remind us what they were? So, I was on um, one of the uh, general conference uh, reviews at the most at the April 2011 general conference. Uh, it was Saturday morning, I think. And then I and I was invited on that one. And then I was uninvited on the uh, recent Doctrine and Covenants eight and nine. I'm afraid that, by and large, I was the uh, the voice of of Lucifer on that. So just kind of popping in every once in a while uninvitedly. Right. Okay. And then we have longtime Mormon Expression uh, panelist. Uh, are you going by Garen or or George? I'm going, going by, by Garen. Garen George. Yep. Or okay. George. I'll go by George because everybody knows me like that. Okay. George is slowly transitioning his identity to Garen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have Garen George. Hello, George. Hey, everybody. Nice to be back. It's going to be a great evening. And then we also have Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi. How's it going? Going good. Are you happy to be on the panel tonight? I am. I just hope I'm prepared enough is all. Well, you know what? I am having the same trepidation, so don't worry. I'm having the same trepidation, but (laughs) what are you going to do? Right. Okay, so today we're doing another installment of the Dummies series. Obviously, those of us on the panel are the Dummies. And tonight's subject is a talk, an infamous talk, given by Boyd K. Packer at BYU in the early, early 80s. Um, The title of the talk is, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect. He gave it at a CES conference. So the audience of the talk consisted of seminary teachers and institute teachers and people who were in CES at the time. But it takes... um, The majority, I guess I should say, the majority of the focus of the talk is on historians and how they write about church history and the way they portray the church and church leaders and church founders um, in that writing. And Packer has a problem with not only mainstream books or things written for consumption by you know, a general Mormon audience, but he also takes exception with things that are written for scholarly journals, um, things that aren't really meant to be consumed by your average church-going person. These are things that are published in in uh, peer-reviewed journals that are uh, only used in higher education and research and, and you know, doing history stuff. Um, so anyway, in the talk, uh, Packer spends a lot of time focusing on not putting your career in front of what he thinks should be your ultimate obligation, which is to the church and making sure that you are spreading the gospel and and only portraying the church in the most positive light. Anything short of that to Packer is speaking ill of the Lord's anointed, for lack of a better term. Um, He only wants kind of driving this point home, beating a dead horse or whatever, but he only wants faith-promoting things written. So after he spends some time um, talking about the way history should be written, he then goes on to provide four cautions or warnings um, about what you are in danger of doing if you do spend time 
trying to take a balanced approach to church history or provide a complete picture of everything that was going on at the time, he doesn't want, he doesn't think that we should be doing that, basically. Um, so that's just a general overview of what's in the talk. And before we get into hashing out what's wrong with it or what you like about it, if that might be the case, uh, I asked Greg to spend some time talking about what was going on um, in the church and at BYU at that time. Um, there were some things that led up to uh, Packer giving that talk. And so for the sake of the discussion, I thought it would be interesting to spend a little bit of time talking about the the context, what was going on at the time. And I asked Greg to do that because he knows so much more about it than I do, and so he'll do a better job at it than I would. So, uh, Greg, why don't you go ahead and take over from here? Okay, so I, I, I'll, I, <laughs> now I feel very un, uh, unprepared for that. But uh, so I want to start with the disclaimer that this is sort of the gospel according to me on what happened. I'm kind of looking at events and trying to think what caused – what would make Elder Packer want to give this particular message? And, um, you know, what events had happened kind of in the history of the church just just leading up to this? Um, and I think it is worthwhile to start with kind of a contextual, how do we regard ourselves in terms of, as Mormons in terms of the search for the truth? Um, and I want to say that Mormonism has really taken truth very seriously since Joseph Smith, that that was a really important thing. Joseph taught all truth can be circumscribed into one great whole. This is a phrase that we hear over and over and over and over and over again in our lives. Um, he really taught, you know, everything should sort of move in. And and so I think they really expected like the early members of the church. Um, and I have a quote for this, but the early members of the church and early general authorities, they really thought, you know, this is all literally true, and uh, the Book of Mormon is really true. When we get the archaeology, it'll show that it's really true. Uh, if we had a video camera of the first vision, we would see that the Father and Son appeared, kind of depending on, you know, if, after 1870, kind of when that started to be emphasized. But we would see that the Father and Son appeared and that this happened, and obviously President Hinckley is really pressing the idea that that's really foundational and that – and that truth wasn't squishy and that uh, it would really be found. So President Hubie Brown, who was a member of the, of the first presidency, even, if, even though he was a Democrat, um, he said <laughs> – that was for you. <laughs> he said um, in a quote, he says, I admire men and women who have developed the questing spirit, who are unafraid of new ideas as stepping stones to progress – we should, of course, respect the opinions of others, but we should also be unafraid to dissent if we are informed. Thoughts and expressions compete in the marketplace of thought, and in that competition, truth emerges triumphant. Only error fears freedom of expression. This free exchange of ideas is not to be deplored as long as men and women remain humble and teachable. Neither fear of consequence or any kind of coercion should ever be used to secure uniformity of thought in the church. This, of course, was before correlation. So I guess we'll <laughs> forgive, forgive him for this. But people should express their problems and opinions and be unafraid to think without fear of ill consequences. We must preserve freedom of the mind in the church and resist all efforts to suppress it. And, and, and there's other great quotes by George Q. Cannon. There's quotes that say 
you know, this this stuff is true, and if it's not true, it should be torn down, but it is true, and God will back it up. And I think that's the context that we have to go into this with as we move into the historical period. So Hubie Brown says this it's in, sometime in the 60s, and so I'm going to start to go through a little chain of events as kind of I see it, and there's probably other things that could be thrown in, and people can throw them in on the on the uh, discussion boards. But so you you have this importance that all of these things are literally true. We, of course, you know, chapel Mormons and, and people going to church, there is no concept that, uh, that you know, that this is truth as metaphor or anything. So they really believe that all truth can be circumscribed into one great whole and that the evidence would come in to support the truth of the church. So late 60s, the Book of Abraham papyri are discovered. You know, we thought they were destroyed. They're discovered. The church sets historians to, to take a look at them and uh, and non-Mormons start taking a look at them. And the church backs away from sort of that, I would say, pretty, you know, they were being they were being displayed in BYU. They're not on display in BYU anymore. And why do we not want to talk about it? Well, because it, it becomes problematic in terms of that that confirmation that we expected. The new Mormon history kind of begins. Mike or Leonard Arrington is put in as um, the church historian in 1972. He, of course, believes in an unvarnished, unwhitewashed view of history. Um, he uh, maybe, and I th- really think the the central epic figure in this is D. Michael Quinn. Quinn goes to BYU in 1974. From 1972 to 1982, Arrington is in charge of church history. Quinn is publishing, other people are publishing, all kinds of things are being published that are not, I, they're, they become in this talk by Packer, faith destroying, but the people who wrote them were faithful. But they're, they're, they're talking about things in a scholarly way, and things are coming to light that have never come to light before, so, like, for example, the Book of Abraham. Um, Sunstone um, starts publishing in 1979. Uh, or or maybe earlier than that, but they start doing their symposium then. Dialogue has been publishing since the late 60s. So you have this flowering, both on the LDS and on the RLDS side, this flowering of scholarship. And then in 1981, the Kinderhook plates that um, kind of have been thought to be uh, false, well, it, it's a complicated discussion, but the Kinderhook plates are verified as being authentically false, and that sort of puts another nail in the coffin of Joseph as a as a translator. And then Signature Books begins publishing in 1981. And Arrington publishes one of the very first books called Saints Without Halos, which was a look at Latter-day Saints without, um, you know, showing all their imperfections and showing them as real people. And so. <clears throat> hey, hey, Greg, was yeah. um, was Arrington's book, was that a signature it publication? Was it was one of the first books published by Signature Book. The mm-hmm. first book published by Signature Book was, I believe, um, what's his um, uh, science fiction writer guy? That's Scott Card. Orson. Orson Scott Card. It was a, it was like a sort of Mormon dictionary casting fun at kind of all of our idiosyncrasies. And then so you're saying basically, that, okay, go ahead, go ahead, finish your. No, thought. I think I'm pretty. I, so, so you come, you're coming into the point where Packer gives this talk and. And he's got to be he's looking at he doesn't like all of this uh, unbiased history and it's causing problems. And you have the problem of as we're starting to look seriously at evidence as it starts coming, we don't really have DNA evidence yet. 
But as you start, the evidence is not coming in in the way that he wanted it to. And so let's not talk about it. And that's really where I think we get to this talk uh, being being given. And so that's so I find it. I find it interesting that a couple of the things that you mentioned were within 10, 15, 20 years of the occurrence. But the two that were absolutely within that that time frame and and until you mentioned it, I didn't know the time frame of the same year was the Kinderhook plates and Arrington's first book with signature. And that's that's a pretty interesting timing. And then for him to show up on BYU campus in August of that year, does the, the timing of the Kinderhook plates and the release of the book, I, I take it that both of those events were pre-July 81? The, um, that I don't know, actually, and I wouldn't mind somebody coming in to sort of let me know. I think another significant one or two is is the Sunstone Symposium starting in 79, I think is highly significant. I also, um, Arrington and a couple of other people from Church History Office also um, published in 1979 a, a sort of a history of the Latter-day Saints, which was written from a scholarly point of view. Um, and I and I didn't have that in my original list, but was reading about that earlier today. And I think that was significant because, again, it's, it's being written from a non-spiritual standpoint, like they're writing it specifically for non-Mormon audiences. Not necessarily non-faithful, but non-spiritual. So you're, you're pointing... To, to two events occurring two years prior and then two events happening the same year of this speech, which is okay. I follow on. Thanks. Thanks. That's for, at least uh, my, summer. that's at least my thought. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Let me, let me chime in here with something that I was, I've been thinking about. Um, when I was preparing for the top 10 um, apostles that were excommunicated, um, I did a lot of reading on shoot now I can't remember his name the num one of the number one guys um, who was excommunicated for post um, you know the guy who oh, was caught he, who he was had caught. he had his mistress on the side for yes, the entire yes, time he was an apostle yes and uh, his excommunication happened when um, uh, why am I so brain dead today. Um, David O. McKay, when David O. McKay was first new to the Twelve Apostles, and there was a lot of talk about how um, David O. McKay was kind of from a different era than the rest of the people that were in the Twelve Apostles at the time. Um, the older members of the Twelve Apostles were used to a time in church in church history when the government was an obvious adversary, and they were obvious outsiders, and they kind of knew things weren't, uh, I want to be as neutral as I can here, but they knew things weren't as simple and easy as people like David O. McKay thought. David O. McKay kind of came in during an era when the church had, I don't know, civilized for lack of a better word. And I don't mean that for the church itself, but I mean the West was settled and it was more modern and more, you know, um, more urban, have... and and the church was simple. Like all of the really hard struggles were over. All of the really big conflicts with the government were over. And so it seems to me like with David O. McKay and the people that came in after him, they have a different experience with being in church leadership. Do you know what I mean? Because it's more just about the simple, uh, the simple good truths of the church. There's not all this tension going on with persecution and problems with the government. And so you had kind of this loosening up 
And um, by the time you get to the late 70s, I mean, how long has gone by since anybody who was practicing polygamy was in any position of authority or who any yeah. anybody who knew of the struggles that happened that when the pioneers first came to Utah, all of those people were, you know, had died and they, it had been taken over by a new generation who were used to a very peaceful, good time in Mormonism where they had been fed all of these wonderful stories about all the wonderful things that happened. And people don't typically like to talk about the bad things that happen or the, or the struggles or the things that maybe aren't as simple as, you know, as you want them to be. So you had this church leadership who thought, who were, who were used to that setting in the church. And so they thought, well, let's go ahead and start, you know, really delving into the church history and talking about all the wonderful things that happened. And they found out that it was a little more messy than they thought in the beginning. Yeah, a lot of things. So, like, for instance, No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody is published in uh, in the mid-40s or mid-50s, right? A lot of historical work and, and documents and things were uncovered in the time between when she published it and, say, the 70s, and she republished it with additional information. There was a ton of scholarship. There were tons of documents that kind of were unpacked for the first time. So it, uh, you know, that had come across the plains or whatever and sat in a case. They're just, and I think to your to your point, the church is becoming global as it goes in, or it's it's beginning to spread out beyond Utah. You know, we we, we are definitely um, David O. McKay says, stay where you're at, and we're trying to go get converts everywhere else. And the big PR campaign, probably spearheaded by Gordon B. Hinckley, is is happening and starting to happen and we're starting to try and sort of integrate and really um, become something beyond just just Utah and so you know the the scholars think it's they think it's really important but the same thing was happening also with the RLDS at the same time the issue of scholarship maybe was just in the water but um, everybody felt like they needed to be really being real scholars about their history the problem with Mormon history is it's just too recent and too well documented. Well, I think the other thing that you, it leads to is is this sense that you mentioned about the, the global growth and the numbers growth. Um, up until a certain point, there was a willingness to be open because um, they could kind of control the narrative when it's a, mostly a Wasatch Front or a Utah or Utah-Idaho, Nevada. You've got to start, include Mike here. Um, um, thing you can you can uh, make this happen and you can make course adjustments if if something comes up, but when they when the the narrative and the story starts moving outward, in addition, um, not only outward but also increase in numbers, you have to control it a little bit more, especially if there's um, faith unpromoting things that occur. And several times in this talk, he, he makes mention of this about the milk versus meat, the advanced testimony versus the beginner testimony. Um, outside of the Wasatch Front, where your whole existence is built up around the church and people in the church, um, these things are a little, can make more effect on you than, uh, than it does if it's... Um, if you're outside, I mean, you just need to be able to control that narrative a bit. Uh, Mike, what's your thoughts? Where are you at on this, this history portion? Uh, I understand the, the point I took from the, from the talk is, is avoid negativity. The, when, you, when you break down the gospel to its simplest point, the, the whole focus is on the atonement of Christ. And we're all trying to, to be a part of that. And when we 
tear down each other or or you know some character from history just for the sake of uh having some interesting reading it, it destroys a person's faith in their ability to achieve being part of the atonement so i totally agree what i'm what i'm wondering is do you see any reason for that type of a message to come out to the seminary teachers in august of 81 and and it can, do you think there's any particular reasons why, from your perspective, that this talk would have been needed to this group at that point by this guy? Uh, I think, like like Greg said, you know, when they when they came to Utah and they had all the records, they sat in boxes for years. I mean, when, Greg, when did they first start cracking open all those boxes up? In there? I I I really don't know. I mean, it was, it was late. When, it was whenever Arrington took over that, that all was, of the stuff started being opened. I mean, Arrington. Right. Arrington was starting to work in the, say, in the mid-60s and the late-60s, you know, and he took over in 72, and people were getting access to the archives then uh, in a way that they hadn't, in the way that they hadn't before. And that was mentioned in the talk, 10 Years in Camelot, um, that, uh, that is also kind of thinking back on the uh, Arrington years and was, uh, and was written in dialogue. Right. So, I mean, let's, let's, if we step outside the church and look at it, let's say we want to look at Abraham Lincoln. He's a, he's a hero to Americans and, and particularly, uh, you know, those that have ancestors that were freed slaves. You can look at his life and look at all the positive things, and it makes you feel pumped up for America and being an American citizen and what a great country I live in. But if you dig into his past, you look at things like he's selling off railroad properties as they're building a railroad, and he's got all these back-side deals going on. You know, there's two histories to every character. And if we want to help, and when you're looking at a religious history, you know, you don't want to tear apart all the founding guys that did all these amazing things just for the sake of having some interesting reading. Well, why why is it just for the sake of having interesting reading, Mike? Because this is clearly – this is a perspective that a lot of people are espousing, but why do we assume that it's just for interest as opposed for as opposed to as opposed to empathy and understanding? Why do we assume that it's just flippant? I can I back you up on this one, Mike? Go ahead. I think uh, I was thinking of two things as Mike was talking. First, I think the reason that Packer came down on this, I personally. Um, while I don't believe anymore, I do not think that the 12 apostles and the leadership of the church are conniving bad people. I and neither do they, I. Right. They are genuinely good guys who honestly believe that this is the path. The church is true. This is what this is what will bring people happiness and goodness and all that. So you've got Packer looking at all of this stuff that's coming out of church history and damaging people's faith. And he's like, wait a minute, quit focusing on that. You know, this isn't this isn't something that we need to be dredging up. You need to be focusing on, you know, the good, solid truths that are in the gospel. And I think what what it shows is a difference in not only the time. I think there are very, there are cycles that go that go in a society. Um, you have periods of time where the media and and that includes like history books as well as like radio shows and television shows and magazines and books. The good guys are 100% good and the bad guys are 100% bad. And you've got the hero, you know, bad guy thing going on. But then you go through periods of time where moral ambiguity becomes more, I don't know what you want to say, in fashion. And so well, good guys start to have a have a weak side, and bad guys start to have redeeming qualities. And I think that 
there there is a certain group of people who will take the frailties of man and use them to dis completely dismantle something that is worth believing in and then there are another group of people who like to know like you said to have empathy for the situation or whatever it doesn't it doesn't destroy them to know that that everything is not you know 100% black and white that good people have bad qualities or that um, weaknesses or whatever. And I think that the problem is that people like Packer worry that the only thing that will come out of talking about the bad stuff is driving people away. Is that right, Mike? That, that's what I thought. I mean, uh, we, we, uh, we spoke a couple podcasts back about how everybody has a bias. We, when, you, when you're coming in to discuss the gospel, you have your, your baggage with you, and so you're speaking from that perspective, and, and you can't help but talk about it with a bias. And you know, take Quinn for example. He he speaks and he delivers the history, but he does it in a negative perspective. Well, and but you, you can't help reading it and take take away. Well, you know, everything. Every these people he's talking about are charlatans or what, whatever. You know, but he no, he's not saying that people are charlatans. He, I mean, the, Quinn is Quinn is an interesting person. And Quinn Quinn, this really becomes, I think. This is, again, the gospel according to me on this. This becomes this epic battle of Quinn versus Packer. I mean, it's like celebrity death match Quinn versus Packer, right? <laughs> and, and, and goes on and on, and, and Quinn eventually gets excommunicated. But when you listen to Quinn or when you read what he writes, he believes emphatically that the church is true and that Joseph was a prophet and that the Book of Mormon is true. And he believes emphatically in talking openly about all of these issues, quote unquote, so that the saints can be inoculated because you take a poor sap like me who taught seminary for four years, who taught gospel doctrine for three years, who uh, only did, who never read the anti-Mormon anything. I only read general conference and the scriptures and the ensign and uh, like, you know, some nibbly and stuff, but like not even much of that. And I discover, and Quinn even points out in his response that this is what's going to happen. I'm like, yep, you know, casualty number one. But I discover that the history has been whitewashed and, um, and it just blew me right out. I mean, I, I was just, I'm done. Cause I don't, I can't trust you people at all. If you're, if you're lying to me and, and there is no definition of lying that this does not fit under. I, I, uh, this is a, always an interesting dynamic because I think all of us de, um, can defend an organization's perspective to protect its reputation and its history. Um, we all know governments. We all know corporations, companies, local businesses, politicians um, who have a vested interest in controlling what's going on in their story, not only currently – um, in the future, but more importantly, a lot of times in the past. And and I think all of us are probably comfortable to some extent with with uh, with corporations um, controlling some of the the story that's told about them. I mean, that's what PR is all about. All about. Yeah. Yeah. The problem the problem comes is this is this really interesting dynamic when you have an organization protecting their narrative and teaching honesty. At the same time and teaching that they have the exclusive truth and that this is the exclusive truth and that, say, the book of or the, the first vision narrative as it's presented in the 1838 account and none of the other three uh, three accounts 
1838 account version of the first vision is intrinsically important and essential or the church is a fraud. So, I mean, that's that's a detail, but it's just that that idea of saying we want to control the narrative and what happens when the narrative is not um, inducive to what we want for the future of our organization. Are we honest about our our history or are we going to um, hide the those those facts or correlate those facts in some way that that could be construed as as inaccurate and i think that's the problem that we have is is you have this thing and a lot of people will say yeah we we have a, an obligation to, to defend righteousness well to what extent um, will you go to defend righteousness well in the church we have a perfect example of that we are given very early on in the book of mormon a an example of, well, it's okay to murder to defend history and narrative and and the writings of the Book of Mormon. So if it's okay to murder somebody, then it's okay to, to be less... To lie a little. To lie, lie a little. And I think that's what I always run into when I come up with talks like this, is I get it. Um, one of the key paragraphs that I found, we really probably ought to get into the talk. But one yeah, because we're key, kind of covering a lot of it yeah, already. One of, the, one of the key quotes um, that I found is in, in on page eight. If anybody will have a link, to, I'm sure it's on the, the, the blog to this. Um, on page eight in the, in the talk, it says, um, and this is a quote from, from President Packer. In the church, we are not neutral. We are one-sided. There is a war going on, and we are engaged in it. It is the war between good and evil. And we are belligerents defending the good. We are therefore oblig obliged to give preference to and protect all that is represented in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have made covenants to do it. And I'll put in my conference thing, unquote. Or close quote. <laughs> um, so um, I I see in that paragraph justific moral justification or self justification or self delusion, however you, way you want to put it, the permission to hide um, history or to change history in order to protect and um, defend good against evil. Um, it's, it's when you have a church saying, don't do that out of the other side of their mouth to the rank and file, and then they're willing to do it. That's where I think it is. But I think Packer had, uh, President Packer had it in, I mean, when you go into it with that mentality, that's, you know, think about World War II and all the lies and deceit that goes on to deceive the enemy or any war um, or company to company or, you know, things like that. I, I think it's a common thing that occurs. Guarantee the, the issue here is some of the words you've been using. Like go back to a minute ago when you were just talking about Nephi murdered Laban. You, you use the word murder. That changes everything. It's just like the, another po couple podcasts ago they said Porter Rockwell murdered all these people. Well, it, okay. It, it, what, see, you're choosing well, the word murder well, over well, killing. Well, okay, go but, ahead. Let him go. Mike, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I, I, I think I know where you're going with this. Go ahead. See, and it just, you, now I forgot the other thing you said. You, you made another mention where you, you, you're choosing one word over another, which changes the perspective on the things you're viewing. 
okay, not, so de- it's not deceiving. It's not deceiving yeah. by not talking about some of the ugly things in history. Oh yes, it, it you is. You ignore those. Yes, no, it is, Mike. You ignore things and you focus on the positive. Okay, I did this in the DNC eight and nine podcast because I just can't get away from this, and I have to do it again here. I have it underlined. It is emblazoned in my brain. <laughs> in Gospel Essentials Manual on page 181 under dishonesty, we can intentionally deceive others by a gesture or a look, by silence or by telling only part of the truth. Whenever we lead people in any way to believe something that is not true, we are not being honest. Satan would have us believe it is all right to lie. He says, yea, lie a little. There is no harm in this. Satan encourages us to justify our lies to ourselves. Honest people will recognize Satan's temptations and will speak the whole truth, even if it seems to be to their disadvantage. Elder Packer, President Packer now, speak the whole truth, even when it seems to be to your disadvantage. If you represent God, God will back you up and the Holy Ghost will testify. Otherwise, you are lying and you are breaking your own commandments clear as day. There is no way you can say that covering up the the ugly little bits of church history is not lying. It's definitively lying by the church's own definition that we are teaching in Sunday school and that we teach to converts. So how so could you Mike, not get blown up by that? So hang on, hang on, Mike. I think this is the core that's probably bugs that's bugging Greg and I. And I was going after a little bit. I think that's the the rub. Is yeah, we get saying one or we get saying the other. But what what gets the goat is when in our in our perspective the church the institutional church says both that yes that that they tell us be completely honest in everything and it's okay to lie that's the, that's the struggle that's what's really rubs at this thing from an from an integrity who's saying, perspective who's saying to lie he's saying leave it and move on. You can't – if you leave it out, you are lying. But, Mike, here's the thing. Packer doesn't stop at just saying move on. He says you are – if you're destroying the faith of other people by talking about factual things that happened, by talking about truth, that you are excommunicating yourself from the church, you are choosing your profession over the church – and that you're doing what, doing something that's wrong. Nobody's saying that we have to spend every Sunday school or every do, or every Relief Society or even once a month. We don't have to spend any time at church talking about the bad things. But to but to say that you're horrible if you ever talk about them, that's a completely different thing. Nobody's saying that you have to focus on it all the time. But it's the fact that the the leadership of the church is telling people that they can't talk about it at all. They have to pretend it never happened. They have to cover it up. They have to give not quite honest accounts of church history. And that's not that's not that is lying. According to what Greg just read. He's asking people to have a positive attitude towards the history of the church and not well, make just a spectacle of every bad thing that happened to every person. But because if, what, what they're actually doing is discussing the history of a faith. And if you approach that history of a faith and just bring up all the sparkly negative things that, that make a splash on paper, then you know, you're not serving the covenants you've made to Christ. Hey, guys, let me recommend that uh, another possible explanation for this uh, 
this talk. Um, I'm convinced that given the fact that this was given in August of 81 and I started BYU a couple weeks later, I think it, this talk was intended just for me. I mean, <laughs> this was the, my future, my, that month teachers at BYU were going to be having me walk into their classrooms, bright eyed, bushy tailed, and they knew I'd be so were you a feminist, a gay, or an intellectual? <laughs> I was just looking for good-looking women on campus. <laughs> okay. So we just ruled out one of them. Um, Before we go into that, let's talk really quick. Um, the talk is about what church historians are doing. And Fair says that Packer's audience was very clear um, that he was talking to church education staff. However, the whole entire talk is about historians. Yeah, and Quinn and says it's now. obvious he's talking to historians and he's talking to him in particular, Quinn, or he can address us it that way. Right. So there's a little bit of controversy there as to what really was the purpose of this talk. Um, why was it Why was it given there? at Because it was at BYU. So Packer can say that it was for specifically the teachers, the CES people, but the whole entire thing is about historians. So there's definitely a little bit of controversy there. Um, supposedly it was going to be published, and I don't know the veracity of this, maybe I shouldn't even be mentioning it, but Quinn claims that this talk was going to be published in the Ensign and that it never happened because of some behind the scenes. Yeah, and, and Levina, about, Levina Fielding Anderson says that as well. Right, and you can read about all of that in uh, in uh, Quinn's treatise, tr treatise or whatever you say it, about being right. a historian. Was he, it's, the title says Elder Boyd K. Packer, was he in the Quorum of the Twelve at this time? Yeah. yeah. So one thing um, I, I clearly remember from going to at least the Tuesday firesides or the, the devotionals on campus at the time, and I think it would the same logic applies here. We kind of knew um, that the that the general authorities in the 70s would show up, and this was their time to kind of talk off the record, give us their theories. It was always fun going to some of these um, devotionals because we got to hear what their what their theories were and what they thought. So it was kind of the, the mood around campus all during the 80s that when these guys came to talk, it wasn't you didn't take it and, and use the same material the following week in your Sunday school class. Um, unless it got taught, you know, got included in the ensign or whether it was brought up at general conference, because it was just a proving ground for them. But this isn't given to students. This I is agree. Only this, given is, to this is, I'm just saying that it's in that context that I'm wondering whether he showed up. And remember, this is way before anything of even recorded. I'm surprised this actually even got recorded um, like it did, because unless he was intending for this to live on after the fact. So obviously it's had a little bit different um, effect than him just getting up and, and talking um, off the cuff to these folks if he if they were planning on distributing this out to the broader CES community, all the instructors. It'd be interesting to know what what was intended from his perspective from this talk. I read I know I read this and it was given to us when I was a seminary teacher. And ironically I know I had a different I read it with different eyes. Well, Greg, you said you saw it in different eyes at the time. What were your eyes at the time? Well, I really, 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 really liked Packer at the time. Um, there's a certain, there's a methodology he uses in this, or sort of this, it, it kind of like Hinckley saying, oh, these are little, these are little, whatever, you know, <laughs> um, little 
nothings in our history. And and Packard dances around and doesn't really talk about anything that he's actually talking about, which is the MO. And well, I and I just thought I just thought, okay, yeah, be you know, help people have faith or whatever, and don't talk too much about polygamy. You know, I just didn't I didn't. It's like I didn't know what he was talking about, and I was willing to give him the benefit of the, the benefit of the doubt. Well, the, the real issue isn't isn't writing history of the church. The real issue is the attitude with which you write the history of the church. That, that that's what's really the issue. He he goes in, on page thirteen to qualifications for teaching the gospel. And he, and he goes on to say you have to have a testimony that, that Joseph Smith uh, was a prophet of God, that he saw the Father and the Son, that you have to have a testimony that this is the true and living church. And the reason is scriptural. I mean, it, it's in the Doctrine and Covenants. If you're going to preach the gospel, you have to preach it by the power of the Spirit. And you try to create an environment where those who are hearing you also have the Spirit so that you're edified together. And if you, if you write history of the church and all you're focusing on is the negative – then you're not creating an environment for the spirit, and you're not teaching to to the level that you've covenanted to teach. So, Mike, do you think he intended it to be that um, kind of one-sided that you just indicated that if all your I, I don't see him writing and speaking and saying don't don't write to the negative. What he's saying is don't write to the accurate unless it's positive. Yeah. That's what it feels more like. I don't. I don't see the lack of the negative. I see the lack of the accurate. Accuracy is an issue. It's. It's. Can you tell the negative thing that happened in this person's history, whatever church history character it is, and show how they overcame it, or show what they learned from it, or can you just say this guy screwed up, and and how can he be a prophet, and, and he screwed up like this? So, you know, Mike, I understand why this is your take, and I don't really have a problem with it because you're a believer. And I think that the difference comes in that for some people, myself included, after a while, it's not just taking a negative approach on things. After a while, it becomes a question. Is it, it, it starts to build up a case for there being something wrong here. It starts to build up a case for they're covering things up that prove that this church isn't true, and they just don't want me to know about right. it. Well, there's and nothing that proves the church isn't true. There's the, plenty that proves the, 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 there is plenty that proves the church isn't true. Well, if you look at the bottom of page 10, he says there's, when, he's talking about when he was invited to be part of some kind of panel by some university professors. Right. And, and, the, and on the bottom of the page it says, uh, and then the spokesman said, we're all active and faithful members of the church. However, and he said, I told my two hosts that if the announcement had read, we are active and faithful members of the church, therefore, I would have joined. But because right, of the because, however, I refused it. Right, because from, it, from the perspective of the faithful member, there is absolutely no, no willingness or no – I can't think of the word I want right now. But there is absolutely no way that you can ever approach anything with a critical mind thinking that maybe it's not true. No, you can have a critical mind. There's nothing wrong with it. it it's – it's like the old sign that sat on President Kimball's desk. Attitude determines your altitude. If That's you're not what go I meant by negative well, mind. I meant skepticism. Like um, Packer was saying by that line that he would not join that group because they were not starting from the ultimate position that the church is true, end of story. And I understand that that's – How do okay, you, you know, know? I think we should probably move on from this because we're not – It okay. just. I think it just shows the – absolute dichotomy between where a believer is coming from and somebody who no longer believes. Yeah, I, you look back on things like this 
and it looks like covering up. It looks like a con. Has something to hide. Yes. It looks like a con. Exactly. <laughs> it looks like a con. I, and I want to say, I actually thought when I, so, uh, you know, I disaffected from the church uh, in February, let's say. I'd been, I'd been, I'd been sort of getting to, I had been, for several years, I've been at the point of going, I don't think I can say that I think this is true. But in February, I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. And so you talk to your mom and you talk to your friends and everything. And, and, and they, they what happened? Uh, and why are you lazy or offended or sinning? And what, what, uh, you know, what, what, what happened? And, you know, uh, it, I don't want to tell them everything that happened. So I found this talk and I thought, this is perfect. I can just point to this because this is so obvious. I mean, this is really what I was thinking. And Mike, I mean, you're pointing out how naive I was uh, even even now. And I will just say, well, just read this talk and you'll understand. I can't be a member of this church because he doesn't this church doesn't care about objective truth. We don't care about we don't care about the truth. We only care about supporting our position. And thus, the truth, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free is not an objective of this church. And so I, you know, I'm done. And if God wants to send me an angel to talk to me about it, or if he wants to help me understand, that's fine. But nobody has been able to help me understand. Well, so I had three different people in my sister and a couple of good friends who they, they sort of took me up on that. And they read the talk and they're like, well, this just makes me feel good inside. And I'm, and, and, and you know, and it, it makes me want to, it makes me want to bang my head against a brick wall. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was so interesting and so frustrating and then you know and i'm like okay well i guess i'll abandon the uh i'll abandon the nice attempt and when people come and ask me about it i'll say polyandry and book of abraham google it and then you can talk to me (laughs) you know i mean like we'll go from there um and so the fact that you see it that way mike yeah i agree with heather it doesn't it doesn't come as a shock at this point but boy i i just i don't know how i mean i i this Mm -hmm. this Knowing what he was saying, knowing that the like the idea that he has that is sort of furthered when you look at his conversation with Quinn in a different in 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 Quinn's Sunstone talk, this the truth destroys thing. Psh, I'm out of here, man. I don't even give it. I don't I don't even give a crap like you. I don't <laughs> I, I, you. I will stand before God and say, I you made this too hard. Like how how on earth was I supposed to think that that was their your true organization when they didn't get they didn't care at all about actual objective truth? Hey George, you've been quiet for an awfully long time. Do you feel like we're so far off the rails that there's just no point in in ch- chipping in here or chiming in here? No, I'm I'm uh, doing good and staying away from Angry Birds, so uh, I'm doing great. <laughs> okay. So you know, I mean, there are some in, some interesting things when I read through these. I can say even now where I'm at, there there's some parts that of it that I can I can relate to, I agree with. Where I kind of go off the rails a little bit is some of the the examples he brings up and things like that. But there's the there's this quote from President Joseph F. Smith on page three that I that gets brought up over and over again in the talk and has to do kind of with infallibility or teaching infallibility. And it's right before the caution. So Joseph F. Smith says, there are those who see in every hour and in every moment of the existence of the church from its beginning until now, the overruling almighty hand of him who sent his only begotten son to the world to become a sacrifice for the sin of the world. In every hour and in every moment, God's hand directing the church. 
And that's yeah. what Packer says over and over again to teach that in every and he uses that language over and over again in every hour and in every moment, the hand of God Which I think directing Quinn, the church. I think Quinn really pointed out the problem Hammers that on very that. well. And that, what was that? That you um, now I'm having a, a brain fart here, but basically that you remove the humanity of the prophets that they are completely infallible, that they um, nothing that they say is uh, say or do is wrong, right? That they can't, in fact. Right, that they can't. And that causes a lot of problems. I mean, what does that do for Adam God? Yeah. What does that do for you have to kill somebody who marries outside of their race on the spot? No, the, the point is the church is true, but the men aren't always. And, and God himself said that. The church is true, but the people in it sin and make mistakes. You know what He's Lorenzo Snow said? Church. Lorenzo Snow said, I thanked God that he would put upon a man who had these imperfections, the power and authority which he placed upon him, for I knew I myself had weaknesses and I thought there was a chance for me. He said he was talking about the imperfections of Joseph. I thanked God that I could see the imperfections of Joseph and the negative things about him so that I could know that I was going to be okay. That's right. beautiful. That's perfect. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's totally incompatible with Packer's teaching. Right, exactly. Packer says, oh, don't you no. dare talk about the bad <laughs> things that people do. Don't you dare talk about the fact that they're human. We know the prophets are human. Don't talk about it. Talk about how they're prophets. Right. Focus That's what on the, the whole positive. Yeah, well, but when we focus that on completely the positive. Undermines what, that completely undermines what Lorenzo Snow just said. <laughs> so, so, Mike, I was at a, I was at a, uh, a young men's um, priestly commemoration camp out about three years ago when I was right in the middle of reading Rustone Rolling. And um, at that point, all the, it was an evening campfire and, and all the adults, all the, all the adults, all the boys were standing, sitting around. And it was this uh, round robin of the adults where we were supposed to bear testimony of the truthfulness of the restored priesthood and of Joseph Smith. And I was right in the middle of this whole crisis mode, you know, and I was in the middle of reading Rustone Rolling. And I thought, okay, the, the story I'm going to tell is a story on Zion's camp where Joseph gets into an argument with one of the guys on the camp because the guy shot Joseph's dog because it was barking too much. And Joseph Smith ends up throwing the camp trumpet at this guy and really beans him with it. Um, and, and it really, to me, showed showed what was going on and showed an int a very, very human element to Joseph Smith. For me personally, what I got out of the story was a was at least something I could say Joseph Smith was, you know, at least he had the decency to throw a trumpet at a guy for killing his dog. That was one thing. But the other thing was, is I wanted to, to, to have something new to teach these kids. I got called on it afterwards by my bishopric. And according to this, I should never have told that. Um, either because it, it puts it put Joseph in in somewhat of a negative light that he would actually have the audacity to get angry and throw somebody and hurt somebody with that's a trumpet. I mean, it was just like you got to be kidding me. <laughs> for really? and, and 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 yeah and for for Packer he's basically saying hey those stories are best left off the radar we don't want those they they should just be left off. And unless it's, you know, Joseph, what Joseph actually did was he went up and and forgave the guy for shooting his daughter. So I don't know what they'd have us tell him. <laughs> like it's not it has nothing to do with him being a human and him being imperfect or whatever. It's just that he's not a prophet. 
So I'm done. What you know, like when when Hinckley says the first vision either happened or it didn't, and it makes the church either a fraud or it makes the church true. Amen, brother. I'm totally faithful to Hinckley's statement. I am 100% dyed in the wool faithful to that statement. Yep, makes the church a fraud. We're done. Thanks. Let's go on to the next subject. The next subject being the first caution in the talk. Let's go to that. (laughs) Who wants to read it? Mike. Uh, Let's see. There is no such thing as an accurate, objective history of the church without consideration of the spiritual powers that attended this work. I 100% agree. I, I think agree. that is an I awesome agree statement. Too. Yeah. He goes on to talk about somebody writing a biography of Mendelssohn and not talking about the music he wrote. Um, I personally think that this particular caution is a straw man because totally no nowhere was there somebody writing a history of the church or talking about church history and not talking about the fact that Joseph was a prophet of God or or had revelations or or had spiritual experiences um you just don't get those types of histories being written without a mention of them um so i that's where i kind of when i said earlier that i agree a lot of times with his caution that then then after that in the examples i kind of lose it yeah um that's that's what doesn't make sense is is i is he he uses these one off examples um or straw man arguments that are so easily picked apart and i'm sitting there going okay elder packer you're a smart guy why why pick easy ones if you know that there's going to be intellectuals I mean, you're you're basically speaking to the intellectual community or secondarily to them. Why make your argument so easy to to pick apart? Yeah. Why are you lobbing softballs like this? Yeah, I, that's well, what I didn't get because I agreed totally with with the the statement. You can't write about the church without talking about the spiritual impact that it had on the people, on the on the members. I mean, it's just impossible. And Quinn calls it out too, and he says, "This is a total. This is this doesn't make any sense at all because there is nobody writing about the church without taking into consideration the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith, talking about his his spirituality, etc. I mean, it's just it, it just doesn't make any sense." I think what um, Packer's beef here was that at the same time that you know Michael Quinn was writing for BYU stuff, I'm sure he was also publishing in. Um, journals for you know other other universities or you know other scholarly works, and he was he was using their lingo, and what Packer wanted him to do was to write as if he was constantly bearing his testimony because that's what you're supposed to do as a witness for the church, right? That you shouldn't be saying alleged to have believed or this kind of thing, which he also exactly. addresses early on in the talk that you can't you can't write about the bishop's authority to be a counselor without talking affirmatively as if it is 100% fact that the rest of the world should recognize that he is getting promptings from god on what to say basically right. what he says
has the beef, but I just think that he's, I don't know, off track with it, I guess. I well, mean, he's speaking from the scriptures again. Like, like before, I mentioned he's speaking about DNC 50. This time it's DNC 84, where they talk about you've treated lightly the things that you've received, and you need to remain steadfast in your minds and solemnity in the spirit of prayer and bearing testimony to the world of those things which are communicated unto you. That's, so, that's his admonition. So, Mike, you don't see any difference in writing for a scholarly journal that's not intended for an audience that is seeking the gospel. It's only intended for other scholars, basically, other people in academia and people who are interested in the things that academia discusses and using a language that is appropriate to that field. There there should never be an instance. Quinn should have to talk as if he's bearing his testimony all the time. If he's a historian, he's talking about facts. In this this case, he's talking about religious facts. These things happened. You don't talk about them in a dismissive, light-handed manner. These are facts. That is not – but the problem is, Mike, that when you're dealing with a scholarly journal, that's not dealing it with it in a dismissive manner. It's being objective and putting it across in a way that other people who are looking at it not for religious purposes but for, I don't know, anthropological purposes or whatever would would view you as looking at the subject objectively. It's not treating it with lightness or saying that it's not true. It's talking to a group of academics in their language. He's saying if you've been to the temple and you've made these covenants, then you honor the covenants, not this uh, committee. So basically, but, if you are a te- if you've got if Michael D. Quinn had gone to the temple, that removed any of his freedom to work in his chosen profession. You know what, Quinn? Here, here's what Quinn says to this. Here's his direct quote about it. He says, "It is inconceivable to me that any Latter Day Saint with a personal testimony." would begin to lose that faith simply because he or she read a publication by a Mormon historian who reported the revelations of Joseph Smith without including the historian's personal testimony of the truth of those revelations. That kind of scholarly detachment does not threaten testimony and is not subversive to the church. Nobody's saying he has to throw in his testimony. What he's saying is speak about them as if they are historical facts. But that's what, but that Mike, but that's what it is. He 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 was speaking. He he wasn't saying that Joseph Smith never lived. He wasn't saying Joseph Smith never had a vision. He was saying to an audience that doesn't believe as we believe, Joseph Smith claimed to have a vision. That's not okay. You have to say Joseph Smith had a vision. No, no. I and I think what Quinn th- keeps on saying. And maybe I guess, Mike, you could say that Quinn is being disingenuous here is Quinn saying and then you're supposed to follow it up. He's supposed to say in 1820, he had a vision in 1823. Moroni came, he published Butler. And then at the end, you have to add your own like and I know by the spirit of revelation that this is true. That nobody's saying to be corny about it. You just say I'm not saying cor- I'm sorry. My corniness is a result of my apostasy. But <laughs> <laughs> That's that's what happens, Mike. You'll see someday. You'll, you'll He's saying treat it with the respect it deserves. How is how, but how Quinn is, always has. Okay, that's what I want to know. I personally have not yet Quinn is on my reading list. I just haven't gotten there yet. Can somebody give me an example of where he was being dismissive or treating the things of the church lightly he or is, saying that they weren't true? He is pious. <laughs> oh not off the top of my head, no. All right. Yeah, honestly, I, uh, Mike, I don't think you think that everything somebody writes has to be as if they're bearing their testimony, but I honestly think that Packer does. 
I think Packer honestly believes that if a Mormon historian is going to go out there and publish things, it should be proselytizing 100% of the time. It should be warm and fuzzy. If you have a witness and a testimony, act like you do. Well, and here's these things are historical facts, and don't pull your punches when you're talking to somebody about the, the church. But Quinn didn't. Here's here's my issue with this approach, is that it's sort of this presumption that the spirit relies on our little heartfelt testimony in our writing, that the spirit cannot operate independently of us. So, like you have this, you have to tell the facts, but you have to you have to give it the spiritual spin. You know what? If I'm going to legitimately believe that the spirit actually legitimately exists, then I don't want the spiritual spin. I want the spirit to be able to testify to me without the crutches of getting the tear-jerking story. Greg, throughout the scriptures, it says, ask, knock, seek. Okay, you have to bring people to the door and say, knock. You have to bring people to the door and say, seek. Okay, God involves himself with you and you involve yourself with him. Yeah, if you're reading about the church's history, you're involving yourself. God okay, needs that, to get involved at that point. That takes us back to DNC 50. Okay, the the person looking for it has to have the spirit, and the person teaching has to have the spirit. If somebody's looking enough to pick up a church book, you need to be there strong enough to say these things are true. Okay, well don't don't treat them lightly. That's all he's okay. saying. Don't treat it lightly. Honor your covenant and bear testimony to the things the Lord's revealed to you. All right. Pull your punches. I mean, if God, if that's the way God has to operate, then you know, if He cannot demonstrate the truth to people without them, you know, getting teary-eyed and misty about it, then that's the way He operates. (laughs) Okay. So the second caution: there is a temptation for the writers, for the writer or the teacher of church history, to want to tell everything, whether it is worthy or faith-promoting or not. This is the famous one. And then the one, then the line. The very next line, it's not in italics because it's not an actual part of the caution, but the very next line is infamous. Some things that are true are not very useful. I want to know what those things are. That's why, honestly, that line right there is why it started to feel like a con to me. Well, so so I got one. I mean, my example that I had earlier about the trumpet story and and the dog shooting. Totally. That's, that's true and not very useful. But it doesn't change anything either. It's not. It's non-usefulness it's not, doesn't yeah. change the outcome of the trial. No, I, I. So I can agree that there are true things that are not very useful. Right. I would say ninety-nine percent, ninety-nine point nine nine percent of my journal is true and not very useful to yeah. me or anybody else <laughs> that will ever follow me. And and anybody else's journal, to be honest with you, yeah. um, it, there's just a lot of crap written down. The minutia of our lives is not very useful. But you don't have to spend one ounce of effort to even talk about that fact. The color of my pants is not very useful, has no bearing on anything. It's true. Completely useless. I, I imagine I imagine a courtroom scene. And you have two opposing sides, the lawyers for both sides, and you have the judge. And I guess I imagine myself in the judge because I'm trying to figure out what's right in life. The one lawyer says, Your Honor, we want to introduce this evidence. And the other lawyer says, Your Honor, you, you don't want to hear that evidence. It's not very useful to the case. Uh, it, 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 it'll just bore you. And that just 
you know, and, and if the judge actually listened to that, that's just the stupidest thing in the world. It, it's not a question of whether it's useful. It's a question of whether it's material. Does it change the outcome of the case? If it's not useful, it doesn't matter. You don't need to write about it. There doesn't need to be anything said about it. Is it material? Does it change the outcome of the case? And if it changes the outcome of the case or potentially could, then I'm sorry. I know how much you want to defend your position, but the evidence has to be heard because otherwise – it's the, the the case is a miscarriage of justice and it's a miscarriage of truth and it's and it's just it's a facade. It's a it's so Greg so Greg I want to push on that a little bit and I'm I'm not speaking for Mike I'm speaking for myself because um, I've I've argued the same point many many times before but I do think there has to enter into a person's framework a person's um, mental outlook on this this thing about justice and and courtroom and and weighing the evidence to say there has to be a different way of looking at evidence and factual things if you are willing to admit that there is god that there is a god and that miracles are possible if you if you want to completely divorce those things and work completely from a framework of a 20th century, 21st century, um, North American legalistic courtroom drama, you know, TV, L.A. law type thing. Um, oops, I just dated myself with L.A. law. Um, <laughs> but um, if, if you want to go with that framework, then I think you've got a great analogy. But I think there has to be an, an opportunity in a person who is faith-based, if you're going to open to that, that there's got to be another way to prove or disprove a point. Why? Tell me, maybe explain that to me more because I'm not sure if I understand how you mean that. Because miracles defy reason. That, that's why I'm putting the caveat on it. If you believe, if a person is going to believe in deity and believe in an opportunity for miracles to occur, you can't use pure legalistic terminology to prove or disapprove the, the validity in miracles and or God's existence. It's just impossible. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and I, my whole life, and I've gone back and looked at things that I've written from a long time ago at this point, things that I'd written about spiritual things to try and understand what the heck happened to me. My whole life, I looked at the scriptures and said, the scriptures give a number of proofs or a number of tests for how to determine truth or how to determine the validity of something or how to determine whatever. You know, they give they give a framework for understanding your relationship with God and they give a framework for the way God acts among people. And I I in I never had any difficulty accepting that even that are that I could apply rationalism to that for instance I'm going on my mission and I say okay well the test is read Moroni read the Book of Mormon read Moroni 10 4 and 5 and uh, and this shows you how you can know it's true it's a test it can be repeated um, it's it's as close to scientific as we're gonna get and I'm totally fine with that I and I don't I'm not I'm not swinging the atheist bat right now. I'm not de denying the existence of God or 
denying the existence of miracles. But I'm saying if you say some things that are true are not very useful, you immediately sound like a con artist. You immediately sound like you're covering something up. And, and when I'll, I find I, out what it is you're covering up, then then I, I'm going to work to find out what it is you're covering up. And I agree. I, I totally agree with that. And But what I'm just asking you to do is just take it in mind as you go through this. Keep in mind that we're thinking about this from a very legalistic uh, American society. Um, and I just don't – I think there's some things you can't prove if you're willing to open yourself up to things that can't be proven. And it's, hard, it's hard to apply a courtroom legalistic proving it mentality to everything. I don't know. I don't know. I, and I, I, I may be just, you know, there's lots of things I can be proven right or wrong about, but I just, I don't know. I've tried to use that one. I've used it many times myself, and I find myself arguing myself, with myself a lot on, on well, whether you I, have to, every, everything has to be I, substantiated with courtroom type logic. I agree with that. I will say it's one of Packer's favorite metaphors. Oh, I agree. He likes the courtroom metaphor. So I'll go, I'll go play on his ground. I'll, I'll take it from the perspective that he likes to take it. He takes it from that perspective. I'm just thinking it as a way to help frame this thing for you. It, I don't know if it always yeah. pans out. No, I, he, I, th I think that's fair. He footnotes I, the statement towards the end of the talk, and he says, uh, The brethren then and now are men, very ordinary men, who have come for the most part from very humble beginnings. Do you know how inadequate we really are compared to the callings we have received? Can you feel in the measure the weight, the overwhelming weight of the responsibility that is ours? If you look for inadequacy and imperfections, you can find them quite easily. But you may not feel as we feel the enormous weight of responsibility associated with the callings that have come to us. If you, if you look for inadequacies and imperfections throughout the history of the church, you'll dig them up all over the place. But if you'll, miss, you'll miss the atonement of Christ and the work it has done among the members of the church. Okay, I want to jump on that. I want to talk about that for just a second. That, I, I agree with Garen on this to a certain extent. I am finding myself to be an atheist at this point, but I understand where he's coming from, and I agree. And I take your response to that, Mike, that if you go out looking for negativity in the church you're going to, or negativity in church history, you're going to find it. That's, that's not a fair representation of what people are trying to do. I would have had a whole lot easier of a time trying to define my religious perspective on the basis of not trying to prove things right and wrong if I didn't feel like things were being intentionally hidden from me. Yep. If people were saying, don't look, at, don't look at what the left hand is doing, don't look at the man behind the curtain, I it would have been a lot easier for me to be able to say, yeah, these men are imperfect and yep. things happen that aren't really easy to explain, but I've had these experiences that are meaningful to me and I can put them in a context where I can continue to believe. The problem comes in where, when, for me anyway, speaking for just myself, the problem comes in when things appear to be purposely hidden from people in order to try to get them to behave or do a specific thing. Yeah. And that this whole talk to me is don't look at the man behind the curtain. My wife <laughs> says the name of this talk should be my mantle is far, far greater than your intellect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, how are you? How are you going to respond, Mike? Uh, how, how many women do you know that have thrown away their teenage journals? None. You don't know any. I I, I know two that I can think of off the top of my head. I don't it, know any it, women it, that kept teenage journals. So. My wife did. It, my wife did. I did. I anyway, still have them. It, it, it's just. 
I, I know that people, if we put it in our own perspective, we want our kids to grow up and believe in Christ and, and to have a, a testimony. But if we die and they go reading our journals and say, well, look, you know, dad wasn't that great and he taught me all this, but what a hypocrite. Uh, Isn't we, that we underestimating don't your children? Yeah. We're, and I oh, only Pat, want them per- to believe in pers- Christ if he's there. From personal experience, that's not a very um, bad thing to have happen. Um, I mean, my kids have read stuff about me when I was a teenager and and during, you know, all kinds of different stuff. They found a whole, you know, 40 different love letters from various girls when I was a teenager. I have no idea what I was in them, but I'm, you know, I worry because, you know, I was a very typical teenager. Um, they know some stuff about me, and I have no idea what they know. But it, ha- it <laughs> hasn't. They, they aren't going to psychiatrists. They didn't lose their testimony because of that. I think you overplay the, um, the finding out effect. the damage. Yeah, the finding damaging out that effect. other people are human. Yeah, if I read, and I'm looking, thinking about it now. If I read my dad's journal, I found out he was, you know, had 14 women when he was um, a teenager, and and uh, even if he, if I found out in about an affair or something like that, I, uh, it's when he, it's my relationship with him. I don't, I don't, I don't agree. I think you over, I think you overemphasize that. I think there's also a false premise here that people are looking for bad things. People have it in their mind that they want to sin or they don't want to go to church anymore, whatever the case may be. So they go looking into church history for the bad things. I didn't go looking into church history for bad things. Neither did I. You also have a false premise being taught. If you teach your children that if you teach your children that the prophets are all perfect or, or if you teach your children that life is simple, that black and white is easy, that trees either bear one fruit or the other kind of fruit. If you teach your children that kind of crap, you know what? They're going to find out that you taught them lies because life is not that way. Things are complex. People are complex. It's really stupid to teach your children these whitewashed versions of history where you only teach that Abraham Lincoln was a great guy and you only teach that George Washington never told a lie. It's really lame because I, life is not that way and you are doing a disservice to them. Hey, Mike, the other thing is um, that I, I think this is not bearing out in uh, the recent comments that you're seeing publicized fairly heavily in Desert News and the Tribune from some of these um, works that are like the uh, Bushman birthday party a few weeks ago where they're saying that it's been a mistake to to keep things secret it needs to be um out a little bit more in the open that that it's been a a bad thing to keep it hidden i think what we're going to find and what the church is is what i see is coming to to acknowledge is this element that yeah they could have done this a little bit differently and a little bit better uh let's let's look at the example he gave for what some truths aren't very important um the same point may be made with reference to so-called sex education, oh, there are many oh, things that are factual, even elevating, about the subject. Oh. There are other aspects of the subject that are so perverted and ugly it does little good to talk about them. Some things cannot be safely taught to little children or those who are not eligible by virtue of age or maturity or authorizing ordinance to understanding him. Teaching some things that are true prematurely or at the wrong time can invite sorrow and heartbreak instead of the joy intended to accompany learning. I just thought that was a great example that 
Well, he says, uh, what is true of these two subjects is, if anything, doubly true in the field of religion. The scriptures teach emphatically that we must give milk before meat. The Lord made it very clear that some things are to be taught selectively and some things are to be given only to those who are worthy. Um, you just have to... What makes somebody worthy to know what Joseph Smith was up to in his life? And when does the meat come? And anytime you start with so-called in front of sex education, you just <laughs> completely lost me. I just tossed you right out on the street. So-called sex education. What do, you, what do you think he means, Mike, by when he says so-called? I mean, what's your interpretation of that statement? Well, because you get you get people that – well uh, – Do you want me to give my thought of, on that? No, because I know Brother Kimball has given some really good talks about, oh. about what is proper and, and good in, in, in regards to sex and how it's Thanks. not something dirty. There's things that are factual and elevating about it, and there's things that are dirty and, and wrong and don't, and don't add anything to someone's intelligence on the subject. Do you think there's a time and place? See, this, this, is why I ask my, this is why I asked Mike, is there ever a time that's appropriate to, to, to learn, to be told the honest truth about what was going on in Joseph Smith's life? Is there ever well, the a point time he's making, when, Go for it. The point he's making is, is, is that the subject can be perverted and distorted into things that aren't any, any good or helpful. But that's, that, that's the point he's making. Man. But that's building a straw man because he's using that to say that nobody should ever nobody should ever get to know the real account of church history. No, he's saying that some things aren't useful. The the point is to bring people to Christ. When you're talking about religious history, you want to bring people to Christ. And if you're bringing up all the dirt and make people look like hypocrites, that's not bringing anybody closer to Christ. But it's again, not useful. You're, but again, well, you're building a false premise. This is not this is not about. Um, digging up church dirt to make people not believe. The problem with this is this this talk addresses people wanting a deeper, more rich understanding of what happened in church history. They are interested in the church. They love the church. They want to know more about it. And so they go looking to find to read journals and find out what was going on and read books that were written about it. They're not looking to dig up dirt to discredit anything. It's all right if reading primary Maybe I am, though. Maybe I am digging up dirt to discredit it. I don't want to know that the church is true. I want to know if the church is true. I don't want to if, – if, if Joseph Smith is not a true prophet, he's not bringing me any closer to Christ. He's obfuscating and blocking the way. I want to know whether he's a true prophet. I don't buy this. I have to accept he's just a true prophet. You just need to accept that and then – and then we can actually have the discussion. That's total BS. I agree with you, but I don't think that always has to be the case. No, but that's the case for me. Right. I will, I'll step in. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be the negative guy. I'll say, yes, I want to know if Joseph is a prophet. I don't care. If he is a prophet, then great. Then he's bringing me closer to Christ. But if he's not, then he's a con man, and I don't want anything to do with him. I want to get away. So figuring maybe, out whether he's a prophet is highly, highly, highly relevant. But not, and what he did is relevant to that. I understand that, but I don't think that digging up all of the dirt is necessarily going to answer that question. Well, all the dirt, maybe not, but polyandry certainly does. Like, this is a conversation you could have with Christians, though, and say that Abraham is discredited because he had a concubine. Well, I mean, I'm afraid that I would have that conversation as well. Right. So <laughs> what I'm saying is that like, what I 
was trying to get at is that this talk, in my opinion, builds a straw man by saying that the only reason people would be looking into church history is to find the dirt to discredit the church. And I don't find that to be the case at all. So here's we go back to Quinn and his talk. He said, um, sometimes LDS seminary and institute teachers ask, when and where can we begin to tell them our exactly. real story? Where can exactly. we tell them the me, right? And, and, and Benson uh, answered, inferred in that question is the accusation that the church has not been telling the truth. And then Quinn goes on to say, so that was Benson's response. Quinn goes on to say, the reality is that there have been occasions when LDS church leaders, teachers, and writers have not told the truth. They knew about difficulties of the Mormon past, but have offered to the saints a mixture of platitudes, half-truths, omissions, and plausible denials. Then, we are told that distorting LDS history can be justified because we are at war with the adversary and must also protect any Latter-day Saint whose testimony is in seedling stage. But such a public relations defense may actually be a marginal line of sandy, of sandy fortifications, which the enemy can easily breach and which has been built up by digging lethal pits into which the saints will stumble. So-called faith-promoting church history, which conceals controversies and difficulties of the Mormon past, may actually undermine the faith of Latter-day Saints who eventually learn about the problems from other sources. Yeah, I think that's a good refutation of part two, of uh, the, third, uh, the second caution. Bingo, wants- Heather, and me. Sure. <laughs> no, so his, point wants- is, is, his point is when, when you're discussing these things, it's okay to leave things out because they're not useful in building people's faith. That's right. When I am discussing, when I was 17 and I was discussing what I did on my weekend with my parents, it's okay to leave out the real things I did because that's not necessarily useful, right? (laughs) So should we move on to the third caution? I think sure. Sure. Uh, In an effort to be objective and partial and scholarly, a writer or a teacher may unwittingly be giving equal time to the adversary. This is where that paragraph that you mentioned earlier came in. George, yeah, that we're not one that we're one sided. You know, I think there's a funny thing a little later on after he he talks about this. He goes into section 121 and starts quoting a bunch from section 121. He says, particularly, we are we in danger if we are out to make a name for ourselves, if our hearts are set so much upon the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men that we do not learn this one lesson. Um, you know, I I really wish that he would have said. Um, we have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men, once they get a little power, as they suppose, that they immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. And then, you know, and you've got exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness. Uh, it, it, take some of your own fruit there, buddy. What? <laughs> Do you... He, Okay, if we have learned oh, – so, so uh, let me just spell this out. If we've learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men – this is scripture, keep in mind, Mike – almost all men that they begin to exercise unrighteous dominion as soon as they have a little authority, how many of almost all is the hundred or so apostles that have been in the Quorum of the Twelve since the beginning of the church? What percentage is almost all of them? I don't know. Uh, but – I'll put Packer in that list. He, 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 he can be the almost all, all on his own, practically. <laughs> the, the point he's making is, is at the bottom of the page there. It says, uh, I think you can see the point I'm making. Those of you who are employed by the church have a special responsibility to build faith, not destroy it. 
If you do not do that, but in fact accommodate the enemy who is the destroyer of faith, you become in the sense a traitor to the cause you've made covenants to protect. And I wrote Why down. Why is the truth accommodating the enemy? Thank you. I wrote down. What if I discover that I made covenants with a bunch of liars who don't represent God or the truth? <laughs> Why, honestly, Mike, why is, rep, why is talking about the truth giving comfort to the enemy? Why is it giving the adversary a voice? Oh, the, he makes the point in another part of the talk where he compares what a lot of these historians were bringing out as gossip. And he, he says the historian or scholar who delights in pointing out the weaknesses and frailties of present and past leaders destroys faith. A destroyer of faith, particularly one within the church, and more particularly one who is employed specifically to build faith, places himself in great spiritual jeopardy. He is serving the wrong master, and unless he repents, he will not be among the faithful in the eternities. I don't want to be. I'm done. You know, I, you know Mike, I, I read that, and I couldn't figure it out because I can't imagine a, a historian um, wanting to focus on gossip. Um, the historians, the true historians that I've, I've read – tend to, to substantiate they they stay away from the sensational um i mean and they just i mean i've got it they just don't write like that if they do they quickly get moved to the fiction section of the bookstore yeah they're just not good historians well you know i i can kind of see though what they're talking about because i can't i don't have any proof of this but i am kind of on the fence about whether or not Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. I'm interested. I'm interested in reading, um, oh, that book that was written recently that was talking novel about novel polygamy. Feminism. No, no, it was a it was a book. Joseph Smith fought. The book is titled Joseph Smith fought polygamy. And there's all there are people out there saying that all of these accounts of people saying that they were Brigham Youngs or that they were Joseph Smith's wives came out when these women were like old. And when they were out in Utah with Brigham Young, and there's that that there's very little to no evidence contemporary to Joseph Smith saying that he was actually practicing polygamy. I don't know the validity of that, <laughs> but I do sometimes when I'm when I'm engaged in these discussions about church history and all these things, I do honestly. There's a part of me that says we will never know exactly what went on, and there's a part of me that remains skeptical to to a portion of what is said, and my lack of belief does not come down to whether or not this was gossip or taken out of context or was filtered through the view of somebody who, I don't know, didn't understand everything that was going on or maybe wasn't all there mentally to, you know what I mean, you know, people who can't really perceive reality, even though they're not crazy, but they don't really perceive what's going on around them. I mean, I'm open to all that being, I'm, I'm open to um, say that, yeah, maybe these things aren't very easily proven. See, here's an interesting thing, Heather, and I want to say that this is actually one of the reasons why this talk is a plague, because you're actually questioning something that the church doesn't even deny. The church doesn't deny Joseph Smith's polygamy. If you press on the issue, the church doesn't, the church doesn't deny it. The, the talk doesn't deny it either. The talk is just saying, look at things in a positive light and stop focusing you know what on people's frailties. You know what they're let me let me you you got brought out a quote let me bring bring one out. When I want to know about a man, I seek out those who knew him best. I do not go to his enemies but his friends. He would not confide in his enemy. He could not know you could not know the innermost thoughts of his heart by consulting those who would injure him. 
So does that mean that if I want to know about Hitler, that I should only go talk to his consorts? Or John Gotti. Right. You know, I, I totally used to I totally used to preach that. I used to I, I used to just shout out that don't go to somebody's enemy for information about them and then what if he's mafia? <laughs> what if he what, what if, if the person you're trying to find out about is a big fat liar? <laughs> and all what of his if, friends are big fat liars. What how what, are you supposed to find out anything about them? Right, exactly. What if there is valid evidence to suggest that this person you're trying to find out about harmed somebody else and did something bad? Shouldn't you go talk to those people that were harmed and had had that bad thing done to them? And nope. I'm not saying you only go talk to the people that were harmed, but you can't you can't completely ignore that ask, that that potential information. Well, unless you're in the church. Hacker's not saying cover up. He's saying ignore and move on and focus Which on the positive. Which is the exact same thing, Mike. That's the exact same thing. He's saying ignore it, focus on the positive, and eventually it will be so far removed in the past that nobody will know about it. And then we don't have to worry about people losing their testimony because they find out the truth of what happened in the past. I, I actually – I love the quote at the beginning, somewhere close to the beginning of the talk. And um, he says, I'm just so grateful that the testimony of Joseph Smith was embedded in my head so strongly before I ever found out of any of this stuff. Uh, you know, it's nice to be brainwashed before you ever get to the actual truth. Yeah. Uh because then you can't actually address it. You know, you're, you're, you're so invested and you're going to get a divorce and your family's going to disown you and you're going to lose your job because you work for CES. And, and everything in your life says, keep your mouth shut. And so, yeah, make sure people are totally invested. Make sure that make sure before they ever get to this stuff that they are so invested that their marriage will fall apart. Make sure that they're so mature that it's too late. And I think we kind of, I think we need to get away from the idea that talking about things that really did happen is giving time to the adversary. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and look at the fourth one. He says, uh, let me flip to it. The final caution concerns the idea that so long as something is already in print, so long as it is available from another source, there is nothing out of order in using it in writing or speaking or teaching. The gist is you don't you don't drink from the trough. You, you go to the spring and get some from a pure source. You don't perpetuate the unworthy, the unsavory, the sensational. Like the Journal of Discourses, <laughs> published by the church. You know what? Or, Mormon doctrine would fall into that as well. Mormon doctrine going out of print, unworthy, this is, useless. This is the thing that bugs me, though. This is the thing that bugs me about this. Packer is an educated man. He has worked in the university system, which means he knows that information has a shelf life, especially if you've done any graduate work. You're not – unless it's a seminal piece of information, unless it's foundational and 100% important to what you're doing, you don't use things that are more than five years old, four years old, three years old even. You look for current, relevant things. So it just seems – I don't want to say disingenuous because – I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna say disingenuous. It seems disingenuous to me that he would say these things have already been written about. We don't need to rehash them and rehash them and rehash them. When he's been through a system that taught him that information needs to stay current to stay relevant, I think it's blatantly obvious to anybody who has had their faith shattered by learning about the Journal of Discourses 
that by not writing about these again, they get put on a shelf, they get dusty, and nobody talks about them, and then they fall out of general knowledge, right? And right. I think, honestly, I think that's the point of this, of caution number four. We've already hashed this over, so don't talk about it anymore so it can fade into the history. Well, the, the, the Holy Ghost is a builder and a stretcher and a teacher, and he, he's uplifting and encouraging. And when you teach the gospel, the intention is for you to bring the Holy Ghost to a person, to bring them closer to Christ. You don't do that by tearing down or bringing up gossip or bringing up unsavory things. You focus on the positive and the uplifting and the things that bring you closer to Christ. And that's all he's asking these historians to do throughout this talk is to be uplifting and strengthen people and don't crush their faith by bringing up dirt from people's past. Is Mountain Meadows Massacre gossip? No, it's true. It's a horrible event. So Wait, okay. So then in my religious education, nobody brought it up. They stayed with the faith-promoting stories, right? Why would you? How does that bring you closer to Christ? So they never talked about it. They never taught it. I never knew about it. What do you think happened the first time I learned about Mountain Meadows Massacre? It probably hurt. It crushed me. So to say that we have an obligation to only teach people what's uplifting is wrong. We have an obligation to educate them to the truth so that they don't base their whole life on a premise that might be wrong, might be untrue, and then have it come crashing down around their ears 20 years later. It's a false premise to say we should only focus on the niceties because when you do that, when you do that, you make people believe that – there is no bad there is no bad stuff that everything they've been taught about the and the the reliable nature of their authorities can be counted on and then they find out that, that can't be counted on what does that do to their what does that do to their faith well, I, I, I see the your, point. Your, your testimony, was, your testimony has to be based on something more strong than niceties and good feelings and faith promoting stories or it will crumble just like mine did. Milk strippings right. don't cut it. <laughs> you're, sp- you're intended to focus your faith on the witness of the Spirit you've already had. Do you know what I was taught by all the experiences that I've had? I can't rely on what you call the Spirit. That's right. How that does is, how does that is precisely correct? When when you when you grow up under the assumption that when you get a, a warm, comf- confirmative feeling about something that you're involved in that it's true and that you find then you find out that there are things that have been hidden from you then what does that say about what the the quote spirit was saying to you the spirit the church is true but the people the warm, aren't the warm feeling that you had was not based on truth it makes you completely distrustful of the spirit i no long i am no longer willing you know i'll i'll be open and say sure there's a possibility that the church is true sure that there there's a there's a possibility that the spirit is real and could work in my life to reveal the truth of the book of mormon and the prophetic nature or the prophetic life of joseph smith but i am completely 100% unwilling to ever base what i believe on the spirit ever again because I have not found it to be a reliable um, a reliable source of telling me what is true because you know what I found out that there were things that were being hidden from me and the spirit didn't tell me that when you say the church is true but the people are not that is not what Packer says here he says testifying to the hand of the Lord in every hour and every minute of the history of the church that God really is behind it He's teaching. He's teaching the infallibility of the prophets. 
The church is infallible. The people aren't. Hey, Mike, I, I got an interesting scenario to paint for you to see if if I can if I can get an answer because I, I I'm I'm hearing what you describe with the purpose of the Holy Ghost, and I want to I want to paint a scenario. Say, and I want to put it tomorrow in, in Elders Quorum. You and and I are sitting next to each other in Elders Quorum, and they bring up the lesson, and it's on some some element of church history. Is it is it possible? for each of us to get a different impression directly from the Holy Ghost about the truthfulness or untruthfulness of what we just heard um, put forward to us by the Elders Quorum instructor. I think the Holy Ghost can give you an impression that you need to cause you to grow. I mean, what, what if what if he impresses on me that it's not true? Um, he impresses on you that it is true. Is that is that possible I'd, to do? That sounds like emotions and not the Holy Ghost. Well, that's Ooh. what the Holy Ghost sounds like. Okay, so that's an interesting one. Are you able to articulate to a former believer how to distinguish between emotions and the Holy Ghost? I mean, now, knowing that all three of us, Greg, Heather, and myself, have had plenty of, emo- plenty of times where we've had what we feel is the Holy Ghost touching us. So how do you explain it? Is it a warm burning in the fooling? warm burning in the, in the bosom because I felt that after a big barbecue today. <laughs> you can feel that way after a concert. All right. Yeah. Now, the trick yes. is, is it the trick is the Holy Ghost will always in, in, in uh, the Holy Ghost will always agree with Packer. That's what you're about to say, right? Well, as long that, as he's in agreement with also, Packer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also the Holy Ghost will teach you something. It, it never just gives you a good warm fuzzy and stretch you and, and cause you to become more intelligent. So, um, Mike, going back to the back to the fourth caution, where something's out of print um, or it's no longer a, a, around, um, does the do you think that the Holy Ghost can testify truth or false on on former stuff like journal discourses or things in Mormon doctrine? Um, is that a, something that that you would suggest that the Holy Ghost can lend a a helping hand with what do you mean, I, whether or not you should add it to the lesson no or or even just as you're reading journal discourses whether what you're reading is true or not well the promise we get in moroni 3 5 is that we can know the truth of all things um, moroni 10 4 yes moroni 10 5 i'm sorry i said 3 5 it was 10 5 10 3 through 5 anyway okay. all right now we can baptize an eight-year-old kid and that doesn't mean that after they're baptized and filled up with the holy ghost they can come out and tell us how to improve the timing on our car and fix our carburetor what it does mean though is that they have now have the gifts of discernment to know what is right and what is wrong we, we don't get the truth of all things in the sense that we can articulate an overwhelming argument in defense of the truth every time or that we can always rationally defend it but the promise is that we're going to know what's true and right and proper and what isn't and that we get that's something we do get well i have that gift what, just the same as you mike why mike Hasn't the uh, Holy Ghost told me that even though I'm struggling to understand all these things, that the church is still true? Per- precisely. Is it because I'm what not we tend, open to hearing it? I think what we tend to do is focus too much on, on all the the peripheral stuff and forget about – it's easy to study and see that all those things are there. What you get caught up in is the failings of the, of the individuals. So that's, that's why I don't believe, Mike? Yeah, I, man, that was that was a low blow, man. If it, no, I no no no, I don't see it as a low blow. If that's if that's his opinion, that's fine. 
You you think that I don't that that any of us who don't believe we don't believe because we're caught up in the failings of man. I do. We're failing to rec- We're failing to keep our sight on Christ. The the testimony that the apostles and prophets have given us that Christ lives and that they've seen him, and the resurrection is a fact. And you're not going to find that outside the church. Well, you find you're not going to find outside. I mean, this goes back to what we were yelling at each other before about you. You can find the Bible outside of the church. But and that's just this testimony thing. And you know what? There are plenty of people. There are Jehovah's Witnesses who feel strongly and have had confirming witnesses of the truth of their church. And there are Muslims that have had confirming witnesses of the truth of their church. And and there are Catholics that have had confirming witnesses of the truth of their church. And you know what? My Mormon paradigm doesn't work with that. And they all of them will claim that they believe in Christ, but none of them will claim that what he said was true, that you should be baptized and, and receive the Holy Ghost by a priesthood authority. Christ taught it. It's plainly taught in the scriptures, and none of those three will claim it. We do. And that's what so, I'm saying is we have living prophets and apostles that represent Christ, and they are here, and we need to listen to them. So let me explain to you, Mike, my, Mike, Mike why I can't believe in it anymore. Because you say I'm supposed to be focusing on Christ and the message that he taught on how we return home with honor and all that. The problem is, is will you admit that the, the church is the conveyor of that truth? Yes. I have no, I have zero trust in the church. How can I remain focused on the message of Christ if I have absolutely no trust that the conveyor of that message is being truthful and and and, and right with me. I, I don't know what uh, what your little uh, point was that caused you to lose your faith that you had. How I, many I would you that. like? There's, <laughs> I've got like I wrote down like a hundred. Now the pro the problem this honestly this is an irre I can't think of the word irreconcilable. This is an irreconcilable difference of opinion. You'll never see it from our our side, and we'll never accept your explanation. No, I used to accept his explanation. Well, at this point going forward, you'll never I I understand that. So I I know that progress is eternal. Mike, you can progress. It's fine. <laughs> we'll be we'll keep the beds nice and comfy for you over here in apostate land. So I have a question for you guys. Do you feel like we've talked about this talk at all? Yeah, we totally <laughs> did. Yeah, we did. I feel like we were all over the place. We were. But this is why this talk kills me is because it's so central to the conversation. It's so central to to how the church presents itself. It's so central to like any kind of conversation about uh looking at what like how to perceive faith promoting history or to how how to perceive this idea of this Pollyanna attitude in the church, how to perceive the idea of not criticizing anything this talk is all over it i mean i re- this talk to me is like turning point in the church and i feel like it i feel like the church i i don't know if i would say the church changed after this or if it was just you know all those other things we talked about kind of coming together but this talk is representative of going from a sincere truth-seeking organization to an insincere good versus setting us up versus them we don't care about the truth anymore organization that I can't. He, he, he never says cover anything of he's saying you're God's representative. Act like the Holy Ghost and be positive and uplifting and edifying. I think the Holy Ghost just te- tells the truth. I don't think the Holy Ghost. I think if I can't tell the truth 
and the Holy Ghost can't make me feel if if you can't tell me the truth and the Holy Ghost make me feel good about that truth, then we have a problem. Well, the truth is that we're all sinners and we do really horrible things in our lives. Do you feel the Holy Ghost, when he touches you, focus on those things or does he focus on you've repented, now move on and build yourself up and edify yourself? Did Joseph when you ever feel re- the Holy Ghost, did, which focus does he give you? So so did Joseph ever repent of, of sleeping with a bunch of other women? I don't know. Did he does is there any I would assume, indication I would that he, he did can, from the so, King Follow discourse I'll say he did. I would love for the church to show some some sign of repentance at some point. That would that's actually one of my that's actually one of the, the top things is like start owning up to your problems. Don't say that it was a change in policy that 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 when you gave the blacks the priesthood Say we were wrong and we taught wrong things. So they were other- wrong. They didn't get permission until it happened. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, I think that's where P- Packer was coming from with this. He saw all of this stuff coming out about church history that was, as he saw it, damaging to people in the church, and he decided that a stand needed to be taken. Packer needed to read the Standard of Truth by Joseph Smith, and he needed to have confidence that no unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. So I wonder if if what they saw is this wave of intellectualism uh, taking uh, root, um, information being uh, disseminated out to church members in a, in a format and in a non-faith promoting way that they were concerned about. And so they've essentially, um, starting with this talk and probably over the you know, correlation and things like that have effectively um, implemented about a 30-year uh, shutdown of of really good information flowing out. I mean, um, getting rid of Arrington uh, in, included and probably going back in probably a 40-year shutdown. And possibly there does seem to be a 1% movement um and it's not from the church. It's from this new range of, of Google-based um, intellectuals. I mean, Bushman at the front, but then other people following up quickly that I don't think they're going to be able to control the narrative, and they're going to have to move faster. But I think, they, I think they've shut down the dialogue for the last 30 to 40 years. You know, Garen, I will, I'll, I'll go with that, and I'll even support that with – Something I've been holding back a little bit. I have a good friend who had a personal meeting, so it's not a friend of a friend of a friend, whatever. So, you know, Glenn can't get on me about this, but I have a good friend who had a personal meeting with Marlon Jensen last year where they had an exceedingly open conversation about the history of the church. And Marlon Jensen, who is the current church historian in the shoes of Arrington, he said flat out they, that uh, – they want to uh, they want to work on this. They want to open it up. They want it, you know the Mountain Meadows Massacre book was published and he's talked about that. But he said the biggest thing the church has to address is the problem of polygamy. And uh, you know unfortunately that whole conversation is off the record. But it gave me hope. I look at Marlon Jensen and he gives me hope. So I heard a similar discussion be, that John DeLynn did in a in a. Um, couple of different forums and he has said well he says he's had conversations with senior members um that are basically the same thing the the struggle i have is this stupid off the record thing yeah for for hell's bells talk about it in general conference and say you know what we we've got to make a change we're going to make a change you're going to start hearing this stuff it might take us 10 years 10 20 years to to do this but start 
stop stop being off the record it's, because you're, they're 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 to ha- I mean you, right here we've got three people who have who got thrown for a loop and not a minor loop a life changing soul searching dark night of the soul type of a loop and it sucks and it's their I'm I'm going to put the the onus on them if they're saying yeah, we can say these things off the record, but we can't say them on the record. Well, you know what? That doesn't buy it. It's too late. For us. Yeah, right. It's too late for me. Like, I find that out, and I go, I'm already done. You can't put the genie back in the ball. I'll I'll stick around and watch the fireworks over the next 10 years, but I'm not, you know, I I have no more faith. It's gone. Wow. On that positive note, I think it's time to wrap things up. Um, But before we do, I wanted to talk for just a moment about something that we referenced quite a few times during the conversation, but that we didn't clearly um, explain to people. Uh, That being that um, um, in response to to this talk that Packer gave, both Quinn and um, Arrington wrote very long, eloquent pieces. Uh, uh, Leonard Arrington's is published through Dialogue, and Michael Quinn's is published through Signature, and they're both available online. Um, So if you're curious about what those two had to say in response to this talk, or if you're curious as to where um, Greg and I um, got some of the things that we were referring to kind of out of thin air without much explanation, um, they're in those talks, and we'll put links to them on the website. So, um, yeah, thanks for sitting through this arduous process with us. I hope it wasn't a total waste of your time. Um, And as always, the discussion continues at mormonexpression.com. Thanks, everybody. All right, thanks.